Okay, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, Genesis part 34, which means we have spent 34 weeks in the book of Genesis, and we're going to keep trucking until we finish. God has been just immensely kind. It's been so fun. Um, this morning, the title of the sermon is Jacob and Esau. Let's uh, go before the Lord again and ask that uh, He would open our hearts to hear His Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You again for uh, just the opportunity to come to You as uh, with the title Father. Jesus, thank You for Your work on our behalf to not only forgive us of our sins and to justify us, but to bring us into the family. And I stand here a very errant man, but we're opening up your inerrant word. And God, I pray that our people would know the difference. And God, I sit under the authority of your written word. And as I preach, I sit to receive as well. Help me to be changed by it. Help us just to receive grace from it this morning. Holy Spirit, help us. There are some things in your word that are going to be hard this morning. Help me to be faithful to say your word even when it's hard. And help us to receive it. We trust God that you're going to work. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Grace, the beginning of the service, I ask, does anybody want some mercy? Does anybody want some grace this morning? Grace, true grace, can be quite offensive. In fact, it offends before it delights the soul. And if you have yet to be offended by grace, then I pray this morning would be your morning that the duct tape of grace would get pulled off your hairy leg. And you would be shocked by it. And that you would move from being offended to being delighted. And I pray that again for myself this morning. With God's grace, with the gospel of Jesus, you never arrive. You just keep crawling down Allison's rabbit hole. Alice in Wonderland? Not Allison, that's Allison. Alice, Alice's rabbit, whatever, you know what I'm saying. You just keep going further into it and discovering more of it. J.I. Packer says some profound things about God's grace in his book, Knowing God. I often come back to this and I want to read it to you this morning. He says this, to be sure, there have always been some who have found the thought of grace so overwhelmingly wonderful that they could never get over it. Grace has become the constant theme of their talk and prayers. They've written hymns about it, some of the finest. It takes deep feeling to produce a good hymn. And they fought for it, accepting ridicule and loss of privilege, if need be, as the price of their stand. With Paul, their testimony is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And their rule of life is, I do not frustrate the grace of God. But many church people are not like this. 
They pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there they stop. The concept of grace is not so much debased as non-existent. The thought really means nothing to them. It doesn't touch their experience at all. Talk to them about this church, this year, about the church's heating, and they are with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude becomes one of differential blankness. They don't accuse you of talking nonsense. They don't doubt that your words have meaning, but they feel that whatever it is that you're talking about, it's beyond them. It's out there. It's too far. And the longer that they've lived without it, the sure, the more sure they are that at this stage of life, they don't really need it. At the risk of quoting too many things, I'm going to quote one more statement on grace. This is Brennan Manning. He says this, My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes at, as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up late up till ten past five, a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a thief's dying request, please remember me, and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who has left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sake, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free, and as such, it will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for grown-up sensibilities. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might trying to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. Abraham... His life comes to a close today in Genesis 25. We've been walking with Abraham for several years now in the book. His life is a testimony of grace. To recap the story of Abraham, we think back to Genesis chapter 12. When he shows up on the scene, God calls him out of the land that he was living. The ripe old age at that time of 75, which I love that. Uh, you're never too old for God to use you, ever. Being called to do something new, that's a young man and woman's game, isn't it? Apparently not. God calls Abraham. 75, his family, they up and leave everything. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 14, God gave grace to Abraham to rescue Lot against all odds. If you remember the week that Tim preached, he preached about Abraham bringing 300 people up, the real story of the real 300 to rescue Lot. They killed a bunch of people and brought them back. Brought back the goods, the gold, everything. God gave grace to have a miraculous rescue of Lot, gave that to Abraham. In Genesis 15, God covenants with Abraham, promising to fulfill both sides of the covenant. Covenants go like this. You do your part, you do your part. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. God comes along and says, I'll do both parts for you because you can't. Genesis 15, the grace that we see. Genesis 17, God gives grace to Abraham, promising a seed that will come from his beloved Sarah, a son. Genesis chapter 20, God blesses Abraham even though he had sinned against Abimelech. 
Abimelech becomes a Christ-type figure, pointing us to Jesus, blessing the very one who sinned against him. Genesis chapter 22, God provided graciously a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac, his son. In Genesis 24, God graciously provided Abraham a wife for his son Isaac. His life truly was a life marked by God's grace. And I think all of us, when we're done with this journey, you know the song, There is a Fountain, and redeeming grace has been my theme and it shall be till I die. There's going to be a day that you and I are dead in a moment, car crash, or dead in a deathbed many years from now. And by God's grace, I'm, I'm hoping that this family here, that we can encourage each other, that redeeming grace is going to be our theme. And it will be till we die. Just like Abraham, we remember, we look back and I remember about God's grace in my life. A life marked by God's grace. God's work on behalf of the man named Abraham. Verse 1-11, through 11, look with me in Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife. And I'm going to ask you, by the way, to please excuse me for how bad I'm going to butcher these names. I did practice. Okay? But I think you can sympathize with me as you read through them. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She birthed him Zimron, Jokshan, Median, Midian, Ishba, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Ledeshua, Ledeshuam, and Liamim. The sons of Midian were Epaph, Ephra, Hek, Hanak, Abdidah, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the country. These are the days and the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age. An old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled in, bear that word. Verse 5, we see that Abraham is still confident that the promise is going to go through Isaac. After Abraham took another wife, Keturah had many sons. When he knew he was closing in on the end of his life, he sends all of his sons away except for Isaac. He was still confident that the promise was going to come through Isaac. He was sure at this stage of his life, God had been faithful time in and time out that God's purposes were going to continue to flow. They weren't going to end with his death. And although Abraham did not get to see all the promises and he remained a sojourner all the days of his life, he was confident that the purposes of God were going to go beyond his generation. And sometimes we forget that. We think all that God is going to do is going to be done in our lifetime. And many of the seeds that we sow, we will never see the fruit of. And we need to be at peace with that. That the purposes of God have preceded us and they will go beyond us. And we are not the center story in the history of the world. And so Abraham, at the end of his life, was looking back, remembering, sends his sons away. And then he was buried. He dies. Rather quick funeral. We don't hear a ton about Abraham. The funerals in the Bible generally go quick like that. Somebody dies, they tell it, and they move on. 
Isaac and Ishmael come together again. The only two sons, apparently they're there to bury Abraham. And he's buried in the tomb with Sarah, his beloved. He lived with her, been married to her for so long. Hebrews chapter 13, chapter 11, verse 13 to 16, tell us that Abraham didn't get to receive the promises that were promised to him. Actually, he died with the hope of a land beyond this land. He died in hope of these promises becoming a reality. Becoming a reality. And friends, that is a reality for Abraham still to come. He saw Christ come. He's dwelling with Christ. But he died in this life only with hope. Hope of what would come. That God would be faithful. He died not receiving everything that was promised. In the same way, there are things promised to you in the work of Jesus that you will never receive in this lifetime. That will only come when Christ returns. That's why the Apostle James tells us to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed at the revealing, at the coming of Jesus Christ. There's more grace for us in the future. That's cool. So he dies. And then we hear about one of his other sons, not just Isaac, but we hear about Ishmael. In verse 12 through 18, we get to hear about God's faithfulness to Ishmael. He was promised, Hagar was, just a couple chapters before, Hagar, Ishmael's mama, was promised that the purposes of God were going to go through Ishmael as well. That God had purposes, not just with the promised son Isaac, but purposes with Ishmael. In chapter 16, verse 10, it says, The angel of the Lord, speaking to Hagar, said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And here we see the promises of God continuing to be proven that Ishmael didn't simply die He had kids with wives, and the generations of Ishmael began to multiply to the point that they couldn't all be counted. We see that God was faithful to do what he told Hagar he would do. A multitude would come. And in chapter 25, verse 12 through 18, we see that God is faithful. And then we see God's continued faithfulness, and we see a similar story. And so many stories in the Bible kind of happen like this, like father, like son. You remember Abraham's dealings with a guy named Abimelech and pawning off his wife and saying, she's my sister. Interestingly enough, Isaac, we'll see here in a couple weeks, does the exact same thing with his wife, Rebecca, to the man Abimelech. Like father, like son. It's just a weird deal. And then you start seeing the fathers and the Mothers playing favorites to their children, and you see this happen from generation to generation as well. But you see in the story of Isaac and Rebekah that we're going to see here, it's interesting because Rebekah is barren. And if she, if the purposes of God are going to continue through Isaac, very similarly to his parents, God's going to have to do something in the womb of the woman, Rebekah. God's going to have to supernaturally intervene again. Look at verse 19. To 22. Let's read, and you can follow along with me. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. I, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethula, Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be thus, why is this happening to me? So this all-too-familiar story, Rebecca, barren, like her mother-in-law, 
And Isaac prays. Now remember, this is like, I mean, again, it could have been a season of doubt with Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. You know, God, are, you know, we're supposed to continue the purpose of your purposes here, and, and yet my wife is still barren. Is this going to happen through, um, am I going to have, he could have been thinking this Hagar situation happen. Is Rebecca going to have the same idea that her mother-in-law did? How's this going to work? So Isaac prays, prayed to the Lord. So we have the prayer. Isaac prays, God, please open the womb of my wife. And the Lord answers, respond, and opens the womb of Rebekah, and she conceives. But quickly, things begin to go difficult. Ladies, if you're pregnant, uh, aren't you angry with the ladies who say, when I was pregnant, I have never felt better. Don't you just want to like slap them around, you know, like, like no, it, no, don't tell me that. And some of you ladies, that's just the truth. You know, pregnancy was a breeze for you. It's just like, hey, you know, we, yeah, we, I could have 10 more, you know. There's no problem. But for other ladies, they just, they just don't like being pregnant. Now, we won't give a show of hands of who likes it and who's okay with it because we don't want animosity and more mama drama to happen like we saw. But... But she conceives, God answers the prayer, but things in her, her womb begin to go bad, hard. She's probably vomiting. They didn't have toilets. There was a hole in the floor. And you think a toilet is dirty. A hole in the floor, vomiting. Okay, You don't have washcloths back then. The vomiting, being pregnant, hard. Back in the day, no air conditioning, difficult. I mean, it's hard. Uh, no really nice bed to lay on, back support, those big mama pillows. And she prays to the Lord and asks a question, an all-too-common question. God, if you called us to this and you answered this prayer, then why is this so hard? That's my paraphrase. And this is what she prays. She said, if it is thus, because they were struggling together within her, why is this happening to me? If it is thus your answer, God, if this is your work, why is this so hard? And it's that natural human tendency to believe that if God is opening a door for us, if God is working, then when I walk through it, or if I follow His purposes or plans for my eyes, my life, it's this natural tendency to believe that if God's opening the door and paving the way, it should be easy. It should be a breeze. Like Things should just work out. And then when difficulty comes, we begin to scratch our head and we just, we're kind of forgetful and we forget, oh, oh, wait a minute, sometimes following the Lord is very, very hard. And she thinks, but God, if you're doing this, God must be distant. What, what's going on? But difficulty, difficulty in life, particularly seasons that are really difficult, it is not a sign of God's absence, but His presence God is not distant. God's in it. He's not letting us remain where we are. And sometimes when He pulls the rock out from under us or we feel like He's pulling the rug out from under us, it's not a sign of His cruelty, but of His care. And what we interpret as His absence is His very presence. And there'll be a day when we have a vantage point where we can kind of see that and say, okay, there, that's what God was doing. But there may be a day where we never get the vantage point to see that's exactly what God was doing. We just have to trust that that was for my good, somehow or another. So God was not distant to Rebecca. God was present. 
She lays out the request, and then Rebecca gets an answer. And it, to be quite honest, could be an unfair answer, depending upon what angle you look at it. Look at 22b. So she went to inquire from the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So the Israelites and the Edomites. Jacob would be born. His name would be changed to Israel. He would have 12 sons, which would become the 12. Okay. Esau would be born. He would become the Edomites. And there would be conflict. The two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Which one was stronger? Esau was stronger. But the older shall serve the younger. Now, why could this be interpreted as being something that some people wouldn't like? Well, you see here in the womb, God telling Rebecca what's going to happen. And just so you know, God can't be wrong. This was going to happen. The only way that this prophecy was not going to happen is if God was wrong. The only option. As if God was wrong. But in fact, God was not wrong. The older was going to serve the younger. The Edomites, although would initially be stronger, would one day be subservient to the Israelites. And God tells Rebekah, this is going to happen with these two boys. Jacob and Esau's path that was set for them and their generations before they were born. And the only way life would be different, like I said, is if God was wrong. But this is more than just God foretelling the future. It's more than just mere foreknowledge. With Jacob and Esau, God is teaching us something about himself. He's teaching us. God is not going to work through Jacob because of Jacob. We find out that Jacob is a deceiver. That's what his name even means. That God is not going to work through Jacob and change his name into Israel and bless the people because of Jacob's dignity or character as opposed to Esau's lack of dignity or character. God is doing something through Jacob in spite of Jacob, not because of him. It's massively important. The older will serve the younger not because Jacob earned God's favor, but because God gave favor to Jacob before he was born because of God. We will unpack that a little bit more. The Holy Spirit points us back to this moment through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. So I want you to keep your thing here, your little ribbon thing here in Genesis chapter 25. And let's go to the New Testament, kind of like what we've been doing each week. Flip to Romans chapter 9. And the Holy Spirit is going to point us back to this moment. He's going to teach us some things about God and His character. And there's going to be two things that bubble up inside of us. For some of you... This will just, quite frankly, God's words here are going to feel unjust. It's just going to feel unjust. But God's going to tell us that this isn't unjust. This is actually His mercy. And that's why I ask you this morning if you want some mercy and if you want some grace. Because we're not at liberty to say what God calls merciful is unjust. If He is going to tell us that something is merciful, then by the grace of God, we want to see it as mercy. We want to see His mercy, and we want to stand in awe of that. And we want to see it and agree with it. 
And so this is where, when I say grace offends before it delights, just hang in there. Don't freak out. Some people freak out over this stuff. There's no reason to, okay? We don't have to all agree on the ins and outs of this. But let's press into this. Consider the words of God. These are, my words are inerrant. These words are not. Starting in verse 10 down through verse 13 in, Genesis, or in Romans chapter 9. And God, and not only so, excuse me, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done, neither, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So you get where that's coming from, right? He's referencing back to this. We talked about two nations, Israel, Israel and the Edomites, okay, Edom. Now we're it's getting personal here, and we're talking about some personal things. We're talking about, about Jacob and Esau. Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So as Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reflecting back on and teaching us about Genesis chapter 25, he tells us that Jacob was not chosen because of his works. Okay, God's activity through Jacob would not be because of Jacob. It would be in spite of him. It would not be because Jacob, there was something in him that made him more attractive to the Lord than Esau. It wasn't because of it. It's not going to be because of works. So God is going to choose, Abraham, or choose Jacob for a reason, but the reason is not Jacob. Jacob's not the reason that God is going to choose Jacob and not choose Esau. That's not the reason. So what is the reason that God would choose to work through Jacob and not choose to work through Esau? That God would choose to save Jacob and not choose to save Esau? What is the reason? Well, two reasons are listed. Like so often you do, I'm glad you asked. Two reasons. The first reason in verse 11, it says this, in order that, okay, though they were not yet born or neither either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's the first reason. God has a purpose in this word called election. He has a purpose for it. Certainly there's mysteries in that purpose. But we know that God has a purpose for what He does. Sometimes we don't understand it. Let me just ask you this, parents. Do you do some things sometimes that your kids don't understand? And for the life of them, they scratch their head and they pout and they moan and they stomp their feet and they clench their fist frustrated at you. They just can't understand why they can't have another PPM&M. <laughs> it makes no rational sense. To them. All, all you are, parent, is unjust in their mind. But you have a purpose in it, right? As man cannot live on bread alone, kids cannot live on pee-pee M&Ms alone. That's a good way to reward your children when they try to pee on the potty. Okay, Tip for everyone. So the answer number one is, okay, God just has purposes here. And it doesn't unfold all the purposes, just as God has purposes for and plans for this word called election, that the purpose of election might continue. It's not because of them, but it's because of, of, of election. 
His purpose of it. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Here's reason number two. And because of him who calls. What a non-answer it seems like. Here's the second reason for this whole piece of Jacob and Esau. God choosing Jacob, not choosing Esau. Because of God. Yeah, but because why? Well, because God. No, no, God, but why? Because God. That's why. That's the reason. That's, what, that's just what's listed. Because God. Because of God who calls. That's why. That's what we're given. Two reasons. God's purposes and because of God who calls. Our palms sweat. Our heart gets frustrated and confused. Philosophy begins to take over. All the implications that I'm thinking from here. Anger begins to happen. Fights in churches start. Splits. Sweat. None of that's going to happen here. You hear me? You hear me? Okay. Let's, there's mercy here for us. There's mercy. And I want you to see it. Two reasons. God's purpose of election and because of Him who calls. Jacob He loved. Esau He hated. God is good and that word is just there. And that's not at odds. Don't ask me how. God is good and He is loving to the world. He sends rain on the just and unjust. But there's a sense in which this is simply true. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Grace and mercy, here we go, offends us before it delights us. This doesn't feel like grace to some of you. It feels like injustice. So question one, anticipating that feeling deep within our guts. A topic that, is anybody just like avoiding this kind of stuff? You know, or have in the past, just like, please, just... Get on to Genesis 26. Just get past this. Okay. Question one. It's anticipated what we're going to be feeling here. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, that's interesting he takes us there because that's at the first reading of this what almost everyone universally feels. And if you don't read this passage in such a way that that, that bubbles up inside of you, you're understanding it wrong. Because he's addressing how you're going to feel. And the answer that we get is by no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God whom has mercy. And I want you to get these two things. Is God unjust? No. Even if you feel like He is, the Word, God, just tells us He's not. He's not. He's not unjust. In fact, the way God is going to describe this chapter here in the second is with this word mercy. Mercy. What feels like injustice from a world that sees foggily is actually God's very mercy. And isn't that the way the Bible regularly works? The kingdom of God works the way up is down. We talked about this. You get a crown through a cross. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The humble, the strong know they're weak. 
Those who claim to be strong are revealing how weak, like that's weakness. The strong ones are those who are saying, I'm weak, I need Jesus' help. The humble are those who know they're proud. This is not unjust, the Bible will tell us. In verse 15 and 16, it actually says the opposite. It references when God responds here, it says, For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So welcome to a sermon about mercy and compassion of the Lord today. The mercy of the Lord and the compassion on the Lord on display. And as some who will always do this with the grace of God, as some clench their fist, there's an awakening in some of you, maybe this morning, maybe one, maybe not, maybe many, where it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? This is about mercy? Election or salvation doesn't depend on human will, but on God who has mercy? Really? John Wesley one time famously said, whatever Romans 9 mean, it can't mean that. But oh, how much he missed some of the mercy in that. For all that I've missed that John Wesley got to see from a man who loved Jesus and loved the grace of God, he missed that. He missed mercy and some compassion that he could have seen here. God's election of Jacob and not Esau is about God's mercy, not his injustice. There's two reasons that we drift toward thinking about this in a, in a wrong way. Number one, uh, the, most, the two most common reasons for seeing injustice and not mercy in this is one, is that we assume human innocence, and if everyone is going to get something, we wrongly conclude that mercy is what everyone should get. If everyone's going to get something, mercy is what everyone should get. We don't really believe that everyone deserves condemnation and judgment. We don't believe that. That Jacob deserved condemnation and judgment. We don't believe that the whole world has said no to God in the exact same way that Adam and Eve did. You realize there's no human being out here who is just free to throw or cast their vote to the Lord or to the devil. We have already cast our vote and it is not toward God. Humans are spiritually dead. We've cast our vote. And so we do not believe that everyone deserves condemnation and judgment. We believe that if everyone's going to get something, it's going to be, it should be, from God, mercy. The second reason is that we live in an egalitarian, sameness society and world where everyone gets a trophy. But God is not egalitarian. He gives differing gifts to different people. He gives differing callings to differing people. He has made genders, not just a general mass of sameness, Stepford Wives people across the world. He's given different talents to different people, different responsibilities. God knows what it is to create differences and to see things different. We in our world, when every, everything perfectly fair, everything just the same, everything just, God should treat everybody just the exact same. But in verse 17 and 18, we see God's dealing with Pharaoh, the one in the world at the time who could say he was more powerful than anybody. And here's where God shows his bigness. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has, here it is again, mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. God does what God wants to do. God is God and we are not. God is free and we are at His mercy. Here's that word again, mercy. Mercy. 
Are you okay with that? It was at this point I sat this Wednesday morning at Crown Brew Coffee weeping. Weeping. Weeping at the bigness of God. The mercy of God. If you'll hang with this concept of grace, why are you a Christian? Because God, not because of you. Why are you a Christian? Because I? No. Why are you a Christian? Because God? Okay. Because He's been merciful to me. <sighs> There's so much joy that can come. Verse 19 and 20, Paul anticipates a second question. Then how are people going to be responsible for their sin? He says it in this way. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist His will? Well, of course, that's what everyone says when they read this passage. That's what everyone says. Who can resist His will? How can anyone be responsible? And in fact, people are responsible because in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is true. Anyone out here, the call is for anyone. If anyone will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, they will be saved. Try to reconcile those? I don't know. It just says it. Everyone, anyone, without exception, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's why theology is so much better than philosophy, because philosophy won't allow those two things. But the Bible does. How can God find fault with people then? That's the question. Because it feels like just deterministic and fatalistic. And here's the answer we get again. It's something that humans, especially Americans, don't like. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The second question is, how can God find fault? And here's the answer. Who are you? It's like God saying, I don't have to explain myself here. I, I don't have to unpack everything for you, son. And there's going to be some people who are going to say, run with this and say that doesn't mean you can't go out and ask anybody to repent and believe. There's going to be some people who feel weird with this word everyone or loving the world. I don't care because I've written it both in there. It's not your job to figure it out. It's your job to delight in my mercy. And I, I'm being merciful to you here, Jared. And I want you to see that. So can you be okay with me not telling you everything? I want to be. Who are you? Oh man. We need to trust the Lord and be thankful that we have received mercy. Just God, God's been merciful. Verse 21 and 23, Paul kind of caveats and says, what if, what if, what if, for this reason, excuse me, it says in verse 22, what if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with, with, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which is prepared beforehand for glory. He is doing this in order to make known, apparently, the riches of His glory to us. You want some riches? 
of His glory this morning? We have it here. And the mercy and the compassion, the indiscreet, just compassion and the love and the mercy of God. Your standing with God hinges not on you and your good works or even our feeble will, but on God. And friends, there's good news for, there, for you there. There's going to be times when your will is lacking and you need to hear it doesn't depend on your will, but God who has mercy and He's been merciful to you. Do you know Jesus? It's because He's been merciful to you. He's been infinitely compassionate to you. You are secure. God has you in the palm of His hand. The hope for the world, the hope for the lost, the hope for our children, the hope for the world is not in the world's will. The hope for the lost is not in the will of the lost. The hope in the will of our kids, it's not in the will of our kids. Our hope in everything is in God's will. If salvation was left to the will of humans, there would be no person saved ever in the history of the world. But praise God, He's been merciful. He's been merciful. And this is what we get in Genesis 25. Team, you can come back up here. The astounding thing, and this is I got this from Jameis Edwards' sermon. He was commenting on a guy named Tom Schreiner, commenting on this passage, and he says this, What is stunning to Paul is not the fact that God does not save everyone, but the fact that God would save anyone. Stunning. The difference between God and us, the fact that God would come and make His enemies His children. And friends, that's the mercy of God this morning. And if you're in the place where you just I hate that. That's okay. We'll just sing the song here and listen to these words. And you can sing along with these words and worship them anyways. You know? But for others, let's press into the grace of God and trust that as we tell of this grace, the message to the world isn't become like me. It's, hey, there's mercy for you. And if you'll repent and believe, you'll discover that mercy. And then there'll be a day when you discover that word grace and you'll realize that you didn't come into the kingdom by your own will, but by the very will of God. Because it was His will to make enemies His sons and daughters. So here we are, face to face with grace. Let's be in awe as the Holy Spirit works. Let's pray. God, we trust You. I thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. That You have been kind to us. Thank You, Jesus that You lived a perfect life in our place, in the place of sinners. You died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve and giving us, giving all who would come to You, all who would sit at Your feet, all who would believe by grace through the faith that You give. Just not through infinitely strong grace, but Your or infinitely strong faith or the right words or the purest form of repentance. We're saved by Your grace and Your grace alone. And so we just want to thank You for that. Thank You that You came for us and You've been merciful to us. Thank You in Genesis 25, the fact that the older will serve the younger is a statement of Your mercy. That Your purposes are going to continue in spite of the fact that Jacob was a deceiver. That you weren't going to wipe your hands and say, well, Jacob's going to be a deceiver and Esau's not going to be good, so fooey on the world. Forget it. Oh no. And in spite of Jacob's deceitfulness, your purposes rolled forward. 
and your plans busted into our lives at some point. When we were small children or when we were older, by your grace, we heard the call. Come to me. Will you come? Come to me. And we remember that day. We remember that season where we turned from ourselves and started walking toward Jesus. Jesus, thank you. You're faithful to save. Thank you that you're infinitely kind. That you're merciful and compassionate. You are not unjust. And you are free to do what you want. And we, your children, together, I pray, would be okay with not understanding some of your ways. But we would trust you because we know you love us. Help us to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.